I'm excited this morning to be back in the Gospel of John. And uh, just before I do that, let me just say a little something about where we've been in, in last week, just for a minute or so, and then we'll dive into our text. Uh, last Sunday began our opportunity to give to the follow campaign. And I want to say thank you. Uh, many of you committed, you, you made a, a commitment with the card last week, and um, we're very encouraged by that start. And throughout the next few weeks, we're going to keep those boxes out. We'll keep the commitment cards in the back and you're going to have an opportunity over the next few weeks. And there's also an online commitment card that you can get to just on that website right there. So let me give you some context. We're not going to share any numbers with you until the end of the month. So October 29th is the day that we'll share with you. Hey, this is what has been given through the church. But I will say this, we, we had about a third of the families of our body make a commitment, which is a really good start for um, the first week. I know families are in and out. I know even the next couple of weeks, families are in and out with fall break. Uh, I know some of you just weren't quite, quite ready to make your commitment last week. My wife and I were one of those. It's funny, like we were texting back and forth the morning of, we've been talking about this a long time. It's not like we haven't known it's coming, you know? And we just weren't quite like on, on the same page quite yet in terms of what we're, we're gonna give. And, and uh, we we're kind of like, well, what if we just split the difference? And <laughs> we thought, you know, it's just gonna be rushed. So, so Jody and I haven't given our commitment yet. Maybe you haven't as well. And, and we're gonna be doing that over the next week or so. And I wanna encourage you to do that. It's a great start. And it's gonna take all of us together to be a part of this. I don't want you to miss it because I really think God's been doing something significant in this and I don't want you to miss out. So just to in encouragement to you, um, if you haven't had a chance yet, we're not asking you to give any money right now. You can if you want, but it's a three-year commitment. You can just let us know, hey, over the next three years, this is my commitment. If you could do that by Friday, October 27th, and then as I mentioned, on the 29th, we will share with you where we are. So very excited about that. All right, open your Bibles now to John chapter 15. Uh, at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, we meet Frodo, the hobbit, the, the hero of the story. And he's an unlikely hero. He's just a small creature living a happy hobbit life at the Shire. And then he's called away on a great adventure by the wizard Gandalf. And so Frodo leaves. And, you know, he, on the one hand, he's, he's willing. On another hand, he's reluctant to leave home. He's away for a whole year. He's battling evil. He's enduring all kinds of suffering. And the one thing that keeps him going is the thought of one day returning to the Shire. But when he finally does get home, he realizes something has happened inside of him and he has changed. There's something new and strong and deep inside of him. He's come alive in ways that he was not alive to before. He has seen things no other hobbit has seen. He has endured profound suffering that sets him apart from his other hobbit friends. He's back among his own people, but in some ways he's more alone than ever. In other words, home is no longer home for Frodo. Although he still loves the Shire, he senses he belongs somewhere else. And the other hobbits sense it too. He's now a little strange to them. He's not exactly one of them anymore. Here's how Frodo puts it to his friend, Sam. He says, we set out to save the Shire, Sam, and it has been saved, but not for me. And so he boards a boat with Gandalf and the elves and departs for the undying lands, which is now his true 
home. In John chapter 15, Jesus is helping the disciples understand that something has happened inside of them. Something has changed inside of them and it's so big and new that they no longer belong to the place where they're from. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, he says, my life has come into you. I am now in you and you are in me. And because my life is in you, you've been fundamentally changed. There's something new and deep and strong inside of you. You've come alive in ways that you weren't alive to before. Your eyes have been opened to see things that they couldn't see before. And then in the back half of the chapter where we are this morning, he says, one of the things this change means is home is no longer home. Because you are now citizens of a new kingdom, your relationship with the world around you is changed also. It's no longer simple. It's going to be complex. It's going to be challenging. And you need to be prepared. People will perceive you differently. People will now sense something different in you, and that will not be easy. That's the message of our text this morning. Now, let us read it. John chapter 15, 18 through 25. I'll read the whole text. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. This is the living word of God for us today. Many Christians in our day have a hard time kind of coming to grips with the the antagonism of the world toward Christ or or toward their own faith. Um, It's actually hard to really understand and believe and, and sort of fall in love with the reality that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've made that your commitment, the world will unavoidably distrust you and hate you. And and it may not always be obvious. You may not be thrown in prison. You, You may not be killed for your faith, although that's possible, but it hates you nonetheless. The New Testament's very clear on this. It's in the Gospels, every one of them. It's in the book of Acts, all over the book of Acts. It's, I, I think, in every single epistle, or at least nearly in every single epistle, in the entire New Testament, we see this theme, we hear this theme over and over and over again. Now, persecution of the church, of course, has taken place differently in different times in different ways. It's been more intense and sometimes than in others. And certainly the early Christians faced it in a way that... You and I haven't, at least up till this point. But despite what we think of when the word persecution comes in our mind, part of what Jesus is talking about is this underlying animosity, this sense that home is no longer home for us if we're following Jesus. And despite how clear the New Testament is on this, it still catches us off guard. 
it still bothers us a little bit. Like, you know, what, what do you mean this is not my home anymore? I, I, I'm comfortable here. My family's here. My, my life is here, so to speak, is what we tend to think. And so this is why we need our text. This morning's text, Jesus says, don't be surprised. The world's gonna hate you. Don't be surprised. You're not gonna fit in, in a sense. In fact, Jesus says you need to expect it. You need to prepare for it. But he also gives this little comforting reminder. He says, keep in mind, it's, it's actually about me, not about you. They hated me before they hated you. And, and this all goes back to Jesus ultimately. So today's text that I just read to you, it answers two important questions. And, and this is where we're gonna spend our time this morning in the message. Number one, why does the world hate us? Like, what is that all about? And I know for some of us today, it's, it's like, are you sure the world hates? I don't know that I really feel hated. And if I were teaching this message in a different time, in a different, even today in a different geographical context, the people would just be like, oh, we know the world hates us. So number one, why does the world hate us? Like what's underneath that? Second question, how should we live in a world like this? How should we live in a world that's just sort of fundamentally doesn't fit us anymore, that's fundamentally opposed to us? That's the second question that we'll get into. Why does the world hate us? That's the exposition of the passage. How should we live in a world that hates us? That's the application of the passage. And I, I want to spend almost equal time on both this morning because there's a lot to apply to our lives. By the way, if you're thinking to yourself, this is a real cheery message this morning. <laughs> That's the beauty of expository teaching. You know, we, we don't avoid the hard texts and we are here in one of these difficult texts this morning, but there's a lot for us in this passage. All right, question number one, why does the world hate us? Well, the, the clearest answer, the first answer, Jesus makes it abundantly clear in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But, and, and here's the reason why, because... You are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Here's the reason. The world's hatred is an automatic response to the fact that your identity makes you an outsider. You know, Jesus is essentially saying, you, you were of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world and your new identity has made you alien. You are now an alien in the place where you were born. This is what Jesus is saying to them and by extension to us. Now, part of the fallen human nature is we're naturally suspicious of anything foreign to us, anything unfamiliar to us. It, this is just sort of true. No, no matter how we, we fight it, this is just sort of true. We're, we're going to have a little antagonism or a little, at least suspicion toward, toward someone or something that, that we're unfamiliar with from the outside. Alien movies basically go into to sort of two categories, right? Either the aliens have come to destroy our civilization and we have to fight like mad just to like, you know, stay alive. That's Independence Day. You know, y'all remember that movie? I'm dating myself a little bit. Or, you know, on the other hand, they can go in this direction. The aliens have come in peace, but we humans are so freaked out that we attack them anyway. That's E.T., Right? So you got Independence Day, you got E.T. Every alien movie you ever made is going to fall in one of those two categories because the human nature is sort of instinctively protect our own. We're guarded and suspicious of outsiders. And this is universal across all cultures. It's a part of our fallen human nature, I think. So you don't have to be a real-life alien to experience this. Just wander into a really small town that you're not from. You know, see how long it takes for someone to say, you're not from around here, are you? So according to Jesus, the basic reason that the world's kind of against us, and I know hatred's a strong word, but this is the word Jesus is using. The reason the world hates us is we've become alien to it. We're no longer from around here. 
Like Frodo, home is no longer home. Something in us has changed and, and we're, we're more alive than we were. We, we, we endure suffering differently. We see things differently. We are, you might think of it this way, we are now more apart from the world than a part of the world. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, the way that you may have heard this stated before goes like this. We are in the world, but not of the world. And, you know, I remember hearing this growing up and I, I never connected it to this passage. I, I think this is probably the clearest passage that teaches this. This is almost the exact words of Jesus in a way. So you're, you're not of the world. Jesus literally says you are not of the world. But here's what I want to do. I want to dig deeper into this idea and, and I want to dig deeper into this, um, this verse here in verse 19. We're gonna spend more time here than the other verses because here's why. I think a pithy saying like you're in the world, not of the world is helpful, but I don't think it necessarily engages our mind. I don't think it goes deep enough. So I wanna dig into this a little bit more. And I wanna kind of ask this question, what does it mean when Jesus says you're not of the world? Like what's actually different about us? And, and, and is there anything practically speaking, or is this sort of just a theological concept that, that Jesus is grabbing onto? So what's fundamentally different about us than the rest of the world? Well, most people would probably say we have a different standard of right and wrong. We have a different moral code. Okay, but so do a lot of other cultures, you know? So do, so do a lot of other, other people have different moral codes. Some people might say, well, we have different beliefs. We believe the Bible is true. We believe Jesus really is the son of God. We believe the miracles he did were real. We believe he actually resurrected from the dead. Yes, yes. A lot of other cultures have different beliefs and things about reality in the world. I don't think either of those things, although they're true, those things make us different. I don't think they get to the fundamental thing that's different about us. Here's the fundamental thing that's different about us. Our allegiance has changed. If you really are a follower of Jesus, your core allegiance has changed. More specifically, your allegiance has shifted from yourself to the person of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, by the way, is that you've committed yourself to a master. You've committed yourself to Jesus Christ as, as your Lord. And this is the thing that Jesus asks his disciples to do. It's the very first thing that following Jesus requires. So think about how different this is than the rest of the world. Every person born into the world, it's true for you and me too, we're born into the world with a natural commitment to ourselves, to our own survival, to, to the preservation of our own life, that instinct that we have. We, we, we grow up, we realize I'm, I'm, I'm committed to my own agenda. I, I'm, I'm committed to my own people, so to speak, my own tribe, my own family. I'm, I'm, I'm committed to the pursuit of my comfort. I'm committed to the pursuit of happiness and my own dreams. And, you know, you don't have to go crazy with that, but just recognize that's sort of instinctively in, embedded in you in a human being. You're committed to yourself. But when you start following Jesus, and, and, and I mean like consciously making a decision to follow Jesus, your life starts moving in a new direction. Something new is emerging in you. It's, it's a direction that's actually not of your own design or will at all. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians when, when he writes, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
That language makes us squirm a little bit, doesn't it? But this is true of following Jesus. It's, it's you have a, a master, like you have a new purpose. You have a different set of commitments. It's no longer about you and self-preservation and power and comfort and kind of arranging your life to sort of in the pursuit of happiness. Jesus moves you in the opposite direction of power. He moves you in the opposite direction sometimes of self-preservation and comfort. This is what he's talking about. If anyone wants to follow after me, he takes up his own cross. You know, he's just stretching us in ways and calling us to things. And here's how I might say it. When you commit yourself to following Jesus, you're simultaneously committing yourself to opposing the fundamental principles of the world. Because the fundamental principles of the world are get what you can. The fundamental principles of the world are take care of yourself and yours. The fundamental principles of the world are power and your own self-will and manipulate things and, and overpower things in order that you can have the life that you need to have. And yes, be nice as you do it, but that's still the underlying principle. As a follower of Jesus, you become alien to the world because you're no longer committed to the same fundamental things as everyone around you. And that means... You can no longer be manipulated. You can no longer be controlled by those worldly principles. And that's threatening to the world. The world doesn't really know what to do with that. Now, the moment you dare to not just say to yourself, I'm committed to following Jesus, but the moment that you dare to actually live out your new commitments, suspicion turns to hatred and sometimes persecution. So let me give you three quick examples. Imagine the corporate attorney who no longer turns a blind eye to the indiscretions of the company. Imagine the political appointee who stops simply bowing to the demands of the party leaders. Or imagine the high school senior who sacrifices her own popularity in order to befriend someone who has zero social credibility. And each of those people persecution will come to them. They'll each be persecuted in their own way because by their actions, they're declaring, I'm no longer committed to the same things you're committed to. That's what they're saying to the group. And the very moment they say that, they're on the outside looking in. So if Jesus is telling us the truth and there's something alien to us, there's a new allegiance, there's a new citizenship, there's a new commitment, then he's saying, don't be surprised when the world's against you. Now we're going to move on with the passage because what I want you to not miss is one of Jesus' main points in the text and that's the fact that you're not alone in this. He says, when you're hated and persecuted, it's not actually about you, it's about me, Jesus says. So let's, let's, let's revisit uh, the next verses. In fact, I'm just going to reread the rest of our text and then we'll come back and explain it and apply it. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Pause there for just a minute. Jesus is saying, listen, I, if I am your leader, then, then you can expect to endure the same things that I have endured. And, and on the other hand, the people that will have received me, they'll receive you as well. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is now talking about the Father, and that continues. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated 
both me and my father. This is interesting. Jesus says it goes all the way up to the world's antagonism toward God himself. That, that's, that's where this goes. Verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. All right, so what are we to make of this, right? This is not an easy passage. God the Father sent his son into the world to do a great work in the world, to rescue it and renew it, to overturn the world's systems, which are twisted by sin toward selfishness and injustice. And ultimately, God sent the son into the world to defeat the prince of the world, who is Satan. What do we know about Satan? He's the deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies, which Jesus taught us earlier in the gospel of John. And so this great mission that the father has sent the son on is being rejected by the world. Now, here's an analogy to kind of help you think, think about this. Imagine a frightened animal trapped in a snare. And, and someone comes with intention of releasing that animal. Does that animal go willingly? No. No, no, no. he fights against it. In its fear, it believes that the, the, the rescuer is actually coming to kill it or coming to trap it even more. So like a frightened animal in a snare, the world lashes out against the one who desires to set it free. And here's what Jesus is saying to your disciples. This is the work the Father's given me, and now I'm giving this work to you. It is not easy work, and so don't expect it won't cost you anything. Now, what's interesting here, if you think about it, I, I think Jesus has kind of given them reason number two while the world hates them. You know, number one is you're, you're alien to the world. You're, you're an outsider now, and that, that's just gonna just not go well for you. But the second reason, he says, the world does not realize it needs to be saved. Like that trapped animal, the, the world thinks I'm already okay. You, know, you, don't, you don't need to come and rescue me. I don't need to be rescued. You see, it mistakes Freedom for more entrapment. And so Jesus comes on a mission from God. Jesus speaks words of the Father. Jesus does the works of the Father. And they turn against him. You see, they're turning against God himself. It goes all the way to that level. And Jesus is saying, I've called you to this hard work, but I'm not leaving you alone in it. I'm with you in it. It's happened to me and it will happen to you as an extension of me, as an extension of my body. And don't expect it will not cost you anything. So first question you know, why is the world against us? Now the second question, which is where we're gonna really dig in and apply this to our lives. How do we live in a world that hates us? If this is true, it's like even our best efforts to help someone come to see who Jesus is, th th that's gonna push him away from us in a way. Um, by the way, you ever try to help someone who has an addiction in their life? That does not go well. It's not easy. They're going to fight you before they'll ever let go. If, if we're living in that kind of world that's, that's sort of just so blind that it thinks we're against it, how do we live? Another way to ask the question, I'll put this on the screen, what do we do with the world's hatred? Well, there's three things. And, I, and I'm going to go through the three things, but I want you to see the big picture is this. We follow Jesus. So how did Jesus engage the world's hatred? That's the question we should be asking because we're followers of Jesus. So how did Jesus engage the, the world's hatred? This is how Will will engage the world's hatred. So there's three things. First, don't avoid it. Jesus never shied away from the fact that his mission to save the world would cost him his life 
at the hands of the world. He never shrank back from that. Why did Jesus get killed? Was it because of the, the miracles that he did? You know, was it because of all the healings? Was it because of all the amazing things? Everything Jesus did was for people. It was as a servant. He never showed off. It was never about himself. Was it because of his teaching? Well, most of his teaching is pretty innocuous. Well, it's not innocuous, but it's sort of not threatening to the world. But what did Jesus say? He said things like, you are living in darkness and I am the light. How provocative is that? You see, he didn't shy away from the anger of the world. He said things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, that would be worthy of condemnation if he didn't have the authority from God to say those things. If he wasn't God himself in human flesh, he should have been condemned. When Jesus was on trial in front of the high priest and the religious council, they, they asked him directly, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus said this, I am. He didn't leave it there though. He says, you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus knew as soon as he said those words, exactly what that would mean. And of course, at that moment, the chief priest tore his garments and the council sentenced Jesus to death. He, he knew exactly what it would mean. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't avoid the world's hatred. And, and he, he walked right into it, purposefully, steadfastly, resolutely. Why would he do that? Why would he move toward the hatred? Why would he sort of stir it up, so to speak? Listen to this. Because he knew that absorbing the world's hatred was a necessary part of saving it. Hatred, anger has to have an object. Jesus is the scapegoat. Jesus came to absorb the hatred of the world. He came to absorb the anger of the world. You see, he walked right into it. He didn't avoid it. For some of us today, our fear of the world is the biggest thing that keeps us from following Jesus. We say, well, I'm a Christian, but you're not really following Jesus. You're not actually taking that seriously. And I think some of the reasons that, at least some of the reasons that I think we could identify with, we don't want to be looked down on. Of course we don't. It goes against my in instincts to be looked down on. We, we don't want to be left out. We don't want to be looked over. Here's the thing. As long as you're just playing around with Christianity, you will not invite the world's hatred. But the moment you commit yourself to following Jesus, it will put you on a collision course with the power structures of the world. And it might not look big, it might not make the headlines, but I'm telling you all, the moment you actually say, I'm gonna follow this man, Jesus, I, I'm gonna change my commitments, I'm gonna have a new allegiance. You're on a collision course with the power structures of the world. Years ago, uh, a spiritual mentor of mine, this is probably 10 or 12 years ago, uh, this man looked me straight in the eyes and you know, with a lot of compassion for me and, and with a lot of context for me and, and my own wiring, he said these words to me, Rob, you seem very committed to everyone liking you. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the example of Jesus. 
Jesus didn't come for everyone to like him. Now, that's what I needed to hear. That may or may not be what you need to hear. But sometimes we need to be reminded part of following Jesus means putting to death our craving to be approved and accepted by the world. And for some of you, this is keeping you from experiencing the fullness of life Jesus talks about because you're a Christian, you know, you, you, you believe Jesus came to save you, but you've not yet made a commitment to follow him. Don't let fear of the world's hatred keep you from following Jesus. That's not a good trade. So what do we do with the world's hatred? Number one, don't avoid it. Number two, and this is a little bit on the other hand kind of thing, don't exploit it. What do do I mean by that? Don't exploit the hatred of the world. What am I talking about? I think this means when someone criticizes us or slanders us or comes after us, we have to fight the temptation to use that to feel noble about ourselves. Fight the temptation to be like, oh, (laughs) look at me, I must be doing something right. This is a very interesting thing in, in our moment in culture. Uh, I, I was reading some things Tim Keller said about this before he passed away. This is very fascinating to me. He made the observation that we live in the first culture in history in, in which the only high moral ground that exists in our society is if you can prove you're a part of a persecuted group. You have to prove that you're a victim. You, know, you have to, to prove that... that that you're, you're being oppressed and, and then you can actually use that to your advantage to get power over the people who oppose you. You can vilify them, you can denounce them, you can attack them, but you have to prove that you're persecuted. Listen, persecution is a very wrong and serious thing. But I want you to also hear this. Exploiting the persecution was never the way of Jesus He never used persecution to kind of get the place of power. In fact, he prayed for those who persecuted them. He didn't shame them. He didn't look at them and say, ha ha, now I'm a victim. And I'm going to use that against you. Jesus never leveraged the world's hatred for his own gain. He didn't exploit it and we must not either. So what do we do with the world's hatred? Don't avoid it, don't exploit it. One more, don't return it. Jesus endured the world's hatred to the point of death. And what was his posture toward the world that was crucifying him on the cross? What was his posture toward the world? Father, forgive them. They don't know. They're blind. They don't see. Jesus' posture was love. I did a word study on, on the, the world this week in John's gospel. It's interesting. The disciple John writes about the world more than any other New Testament author. It's very interesting to look at each of the ways he uses the word world in, in, the, in uh, the gospel of John and also in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And here's what I learned. There's, there's a sense that he's talking about the the world in the way like he is in John 15, it's like, it's gonna hate you, it's gonna be against you. There's just something there that's gonna be hard to deal with. But then we get John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. In the very next verse after that, Jesus says he didn't, God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
So how did Jesus handle the world's hatred? He didn't return it. In fact, he returned hatred with love. He absorbed the hatred. He didn't hate back. How did Jesus teach us to live when we're attacked, when we're oppressed? He said, if someone forces you to walk one mile, and that's what would happen in that culture, that the Roman soldiers would come along and just grab somebody and just say, you need to carry my pack, these, these heavy army packs for me for a mile. And they had the right to do that because they were above and they were over the oppressed people. And Jesus says, if someone forces you to walk one mile, you should walk two miles. He said, if someone strikes you on one side of your face, you should turn the other side toward them. Now, I know this is creating attention in us in a way because Jesus, didn't Jesus also overturn the money changers' temples? Didn't, didn't Jesus speak strongly at times and just put up a wall of truth to, to resist the lies of the enemy? You might think of it this way. Don't, don't we have important things to defend for the sake of Jesus? Don't we have battles to fight? Isn't that part of following Jesus too? In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, Paul wrote, let love be the motivation for everything you do. I think that's how we work out that tension. Let love be the motivation for everything you do. Love, who is love? God is love. Jesus is love in flesh. Let love be the motivation for everything you do. So you commit yourself to following Jesus. That's gotta be step one. And then you trust the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Jesus that is in you to lead you toward love for the people around you, even and especially the people who hate you. And so here's how this works. And, and, and this is not easy, but I, but I think it's marvelous. As you do that, love will compel you at times to act strongly as the spirit leads. And love will compel you at times to yield as the Spirit leads. But one thing we must never do is we must never return the world's hatred with hatred. Let's start to wrap this up by going back to that expression we talked about earlier. We are in the world, not of the world. I, I think that's true. I think that's right. I think that's helpful. But, but now we're in a place that we can add a, another statement that I think may help us to hold Jesus' teaching, we are for the world, not against the world. And, and by, when I say we're for the world, of course, I don't mean we're for the systems and principles of the world that sin has twisted and corrupted. I don't mean we're for the prince of the world. I, I don't mean we're for the power structures and, and, and the, the selfish instincts that human beings have. I mean we're for the world in the same way Jesus was for the world. We're for the people of the world. Jesus entered into the world in love. He gave himself up for the world in love so that the people of the world might come alive. People like you and me. That leads us to the table this morning. I want to invite you to take out your communion elements and it's going to be a few minutes before we actually take the elements together, but you can go ahead and get them prepared. And, and if you missed them when you came in this morning, I want to invite you to be a part of this with us if you're a follower of Jesus. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table. And before we actually take the communion elements, let, let, let me just say a couple of things. One is, 
if you're someone who's not yet shifted your allegiance to Jesus, that's the invitation of life that is true life. If you're someone who, who's not sure what to make of Jesus, or, or maybe you start to realize, yeah, I don't even know if I've, I've believed in Christ. I, I want you to know that although you might feel like you're on the outside looking in in this room this morning, because everyone else is taking these elements, but, but you're not there and you're not participating in this, although that may make you feel like an outsider, I, I want you to know this. Jesus's posture towards you is love and open arms. His arms are always open to welcome you in. You simply need to come and you come through faith. You come through faith. And I want to invite you to consider that for all the rest of us here that will be taking communion, receiving communion in just a minute, I, I want to take us back to the very last verse and I want to connect this to the Lord's Supper. John 15, 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It was God's plan from the beginning that the world would hate Jesus for no good reason. Now, what's the scripture that Jesus is quoting? It says, written in their law, and it's got to be fulfilled. Well, it, it comes from a couple different places in the Psalms, two different Psalms. One of them is Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is interesting because it describes someone being persecuted by his enemies to the point of death. L listen to some of the words of Psalm 69, and, and who, do, who does this sound like? I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What you're holding in your hands right now is a reminder that you were one of the ones who was opposed. You were one of the ones who was against. You were the one, one of the ones who in your sin and in your blindness had hatred toward God and hatred toward Christ. And then that hatred was placed on the Son and He bore it. He took it on. He absorbed it for you. And so ultimately, this is the only way that you or I will be able to endure the hatred of the world is to understand that he endured our hatred for us. Let's eat the bread with gratitude because it points us to the body of Christ. So drink the cup with gratitude because it points us to the blood of Christ. If you're someone who has been redeemed by Christ, it is only good and right that you would want to respond with gratitude, that you'd want to respond in worship. That's really what the Christian life is. It's a response. 
It's response to the work of Christ. It's saying, I'm going to follow the one who rescued me. I'm going to follow the one who saved me. Another way to say it, I'm going to speak his name. I'm going to sing his name. I'm going to proclaim his name. So that's what we're going to do this morning before we go. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. Before we close, we're going to speak the name of Jesus together. Let's stand and sing.